which he certainly deserves. He's invited me to come and talk to you from the scriptures, and I really enjoy that. I used to do it regularly. I get a rare opportunity every once in a while, so I have two or three years to prepare, you know, <laughs> something like that. Well, today was the first time that I'd met Josiah. I haven't been back in the church uh, since he arrived, and so this was my opportunity, and I'm glad to have met him. But I have a little thing with God going on here. Uh, you know the name Tevya? Tevya talked to God a little bit. He was a, a Russian Jew. He had trouble with God on one occasion, and he talked to God. Remember him singing, If I Were a Rich Man. If I Were a Rich Man. And there's a wonderful classic line that he delivers to God. How would it have possibly disturbed your vast eternal plan to make me a rich man? Well, Steve Dirksen, last name Dirksen, comes from a Mennonite heritage. Josiah Wall, last name, surname, Mennonite heritage. Ron Unruh, Mennonite heritage. Both these guys with hair like this. <laughs> What would have disturbed such a vast eternal plan if you could have given me some hair? <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, you see the elements on the piano here, the bread and the cup. So we're set for communion. And this is something you as a congregation regularly do. On the first Sunday of a month, God's people come together and they participate in the communion service. It's entirely possible that some of you have come this morning and uh, you kind of wish that it had been scheduled on a different day. You've got your own reasons for thinking like that. Let me ask you, when you came into church today, did you come with some awesomely heavy, burdensome weights that you're carrying in your heart, in your spirit, in your mind? Have you got a boy that's doing drugs? Are you preoccupied with pornography? Got a loved one that's been in a recent vehicle accident? Have you recently been diagnosed with a cancer? Are your kids' marriage breaking up? Is this the way this Sunday has unfolded already for you with thoughts full of those kinds of concerns? Regrets over actions in the past that you cannot undo? Maybe you feel like you're wasting time, lacking any kind of direction? Are you hooked on prescription meds, don't know how to get rid of that? I wonder if that describes the way you're feeling this morning. And you may think that the elements of communion have no possible connection to what's going on in your life right now. Perhaps by the time we're finished here together, you'll have changed your mind about that, and I'm praying that that will be true. Or, you know, some of you have come in with a real hearty smile. I saw you. And things are going good. Just peachy. There's a colloquial term we don't use anymore. Things are going great, right? 
I mean, you've got money in the bank, you got a new car, you got twin 300 horsepower motors on the boat, your kids are delivering grandchildren, and you love all of this. It's wonderful. Now you know where you're going to go to school in the fall. You've already been accepted. All of these things falling into place. Life is good. And not only that, now you're concerned because communion is tacked on to the end of a service, and you had plans to go to dinner in a really nice place or go for a country drive or curl up with a book. And now you've got this guest preacher, and you don't know how long he's going to take. There's no question about it. What you and I most need to do right now is understand what it is that we're doing. So this entire time, in my own mind, is about communion. It's of greatest importance that we understand that. So I'm going to ask you, I'm encouraging you to set all of your burdens and your concerns and your worries and your issues aside just for a few minutes and just listen to Jesus. Luke writes an account in his book, Luke, the Gospel according to him, in the 22nd chapter. So this is God's word, and this is what it says. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Jesus, or Judas, uh, pardon me, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, who went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared, and prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As I read that, you understood that this is narrative. This is a story. It's an account of events, one event building upon another event. It's not like some of the epistles, those teaching passages where you almost have a teaching plan and you can apply points to your lives. This is just a story, but the Holy Spirit has a way of taking narrative and teaching us even though we're not looking for specific points. 
And in this first verse of chapter 22, there is a reminder of this event that involved or was always practiced among the Jews. And it describes the very last meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And this is a remarkable time for Jesus and these disciples. That's why this is called the Last Supper, the last time that Jesus eats this kind of meal with these disciples. In fact, the Last Supper has been memorialized by a remarkable painting, and you know who did this. In the 15th century, Leonardo da Vinci painted a, a, basically a mural on canvas, 29 feet long and 15 feet high, this remarkable portrait of Jesus in the center with the disciples fanning out on either side, looking out at the viewer as we look at the Last Supper as they were practicing it. And, and da Vinci is painting it from his background experience as a portraitist and from the culture of his time. This is a Roman table, an Italian table, so it's waist high. And it's a masterpiece of a painting, but he probably didn't paint it the way it actually happened. Because the 14th verse tells us uh, that Jesus was reclining at a table. And so this Hebrew style of observing the table was to sit at a low table, seated on cushions, sitting on your legs with your feet extended behind you. That was certainly a courtesy away from everybody else. And leaning on cushions with one arm and eating with another hand. And this is the way it would have been practiced as the disciples and Jesus are around this low reclining table. This was now going to be the Lord's Supper. This is what Luke is prepared to tell us. So we have to understand the terms that are introduced here because that first verse says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Those two terms have a fascinating backstory that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt is very different, or was very different, from 2019 Egypt because currently... 58% uh, of Egypt's budget is going to pay foreign debts that they still owe. The majority of the population, 60% of the population, are extremely poor and very vulnerable. Foreign countries, like our own, are rushing into Egypt in order to buy up companies and corporations because the prices are so low and there is great opportunity. So that's the Egypt of today. But the U.S. News and World Report ranks all of the countries of the world, and those at the very top of the heap are called superpowers. And so there's the United States, there's Russia, and there's China. And then far down, and not a superpower by any stretch, is Egypt standing in 25th place. So that's modern Egypt. Now let me hustle you all the way back to ancient antiquity, where Egypt, in 2500 BC was the earliest and the most powerful and greatest civilization of its time. It had few equals of any kind. Few equals in the beauty of its art and the accomplishment of its architecture and the richness of its religious traditions and it was like that for 3,000 years. The mightiest power in the Mediterranean community. And so all of those centuries of achievement left monuments that you know very well hieroglyphs and artifacts that have mesmerized archaeologists and visitors. Christine and I, like some of you perhaps, have had the opportunity to go into Egypt even for a day trip uh, while on a 
cruise itinerary and stand and walk among the pyramids. And we could imagine the magnificence that once they held before thieves took the marble from the surfaces and before time and weather began to deteriorate them. Immigration today is a huge problem for most of the countries of the world. Uh, news sources are constantly conveying the tensions that exist because of the millions of people. It's estimated 750 million people right now are looking for asylum in some other country than their own. Can you just imagine? No wonder that countries like our own have to establish policies to allow those who qualify to come in and to make sure that those who are inadmissible alien and stay out. And that is so different from that ancient Egyptian time because back when Egypt was the powerhouse, the Hebrew people were looking for asylum with troubles in their own country of Canaan. They were going to Egypt. And it was so easy for them to get inside the Egyptian border. The Pharaoh welcomed them. The Pharaoh gave them the entire land on the eastern delta of the Nile River called Goshen. And it started with Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob. He was the youngest son at that time. There were 11 other brothers, and he was the one that Jacob, his dad, loved the most. I don't know why the Bible tells us that, but he was his dad's favorite. There was an occasion when he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. Do you remember hearing that? Coat of many colors made the brothers jealous, but they became more than jealous. And then Joseph had a couple of dreams, and they were kind of silly dreams. But he, he probably shouldn't have told the brothers, but he did tell the brothers. And one of those dreams he dreamt was of a sheaf of wheat, his sheaf of wheat, standing up tall and strong. And the brothers had sheaves of wheat too, but they all bowed down to his sheaf of wheat. And he had the nerve to tell them that. Now they were angry. And then he had a dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. He said, this is the dream I had last night. They told Jacob, their dad. Now Jacob was upset with Joseph too. You mean to tell me you think that your mom and I and your 11 brothers are going to bow down to you? How could anybody know that these dreams were foretelling something that would yet unfold Joseph was at the family house. The brothers had all gone to take care of the sheep far away from home. Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go and see how the brothers are doing and come back. Give me a report. By this time, the brothers were so angry with Joseph, they hated him. At least 10 of them were determined to kill him. Only Reuben and Judah tried to dissuade the others. When he finally arrived, they stripped him of his colorful coat and they threw him into a deep pit. And they said, now how can we kill him? The two brothers who were opposed to it said, no, we don't want to kill him. And along came some Ishmaelite traders heading to Egypt. And they had all of their trade goods ready to go. The brothers decided, why don't we do this? We'll sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And that's exactly what they did. Then they killed an animal and put the blood on the colorful coat and took it back to their dad. And dad assumed, yes, a marauding animal has killed my boy and he's gone. So Joseph is now in Egypt. He's in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. 
and he's doing so well at all of the assignments he's given, he's given more and more responsibility. He's doing well. But Potiphar has a wife, and the wife thinks highly of Joseph too because he's a young man, and he's handsome. And she tried to seduce him, and he flees from her. And as he's running, she manages to grab a piece of his garment, and she holds on to that, and he's gone. But it becomes the evidence all she needs to talk to her husband about the way in which Joseph attacked her. And he's immediately put into prison. After some period of time, two more of Pharaoh's employees are stuck into prison. One night they have a dream. Each of them has a dream. One is a cupbearer, kind of a steward to the Pharaoh, and the other is a baker in the house of the Pharaoh. And the cupbearer has a dream of a vine with three branches coming from it and luxurious grapes growing quickly, and he takes those grapes and he squeezes it into the cup that he gives to the Pharaoh. He wakes with that dream, doesn't understand it. The baker also has a dream, and he has a dream of three baskets of cakes on his head. And in the uppermost basket, there are all kinds of pastries, and the birds are taking the pastries and flying away with them. And now they ask around, nobody else in the prison, all the other prisoners have nothing to say. But Joseph says, I can tell you what the dreams mean. And he tells the cupbearer, the three branches with their grapes means that in three days you're going to be released from prison. You can return to the Pharaoh's employment. Well, that encouraged the baker to ask for the interpretation of his dream. And Joseph says to him, well, the three baskets of cakes mean that you have three days left before they're going to execute you. And sure, that's the way it happened. Cupbearer is suddenly back in the company of the Pharaoh, working for the Pharaoh. Two years pass. The king has a couple of dreams. First, he dreams that seven cows have come out of the Nile River and they're plump and they're just healthy. And they're followed immediately by seven scrawny, ugly cows that eat the fat cows. Well, that's curious. And then he finds that he's dreaming about seven cobs of corn that are full and healthy and ample. And then there are seven more cobs that are shriveled and dry and tasteless, and they eat up the other cobs of corn. None of his diviners or wise men can tell him what that means. And the cupbearer, overhearing the conversation, says, I remember a guy in prison with me. He knows how to interpret dreams, Joseph summoned. Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams are simply too, simple to understand. They simply mean that you've got seven years of prosperity in this land. And then you're going to be followed by seven years of famine, and it's going to be difficult. But if you take precautions now and set all kinds of stores and foodstuffs aside, you'll be fine. Pharaoh respected that so much, he gave him more responsibility. And as time went on, more responsibility until there was a day when Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm going to give you authority over all of my kingdom. You're going to be the most powerful person in this kingdom, second to me. This is Joseph. Back in Canaan, there's trouble. Famine has already struck the land of Canaan. And Jacob and his 11 sons and their extended families are in difficulty. 
they talk together, think we should go to Egypt, see how things are. If they're going okay, we'll, we'll come and get you, Dad. And so they go, assuming that Joseph is dead and long gone. Suddenly, they're in the presence of Joseph. They can't recognize him. They left him when he was 17 years old. He's a man standing in regal attire, and he's powerful. And he doesn't let on. He doesn't in tell them who he is. But he can't hold it in very much longer because he's so glad to see them. And when he identifies himself, they think immediately he'll put them to death. And he tells them, that's not my intention at all. And in one wonderfully delivered line, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that was his way of being able to say to them, it was God who sent me here in order to prepare a place for you so that you could live here and you could prosper. And I want you to think back for a moment to the things I was suggesting at the beginning. How did you come into this place with those troubles and those worries and those heavy burdens? Somebody has meant them for evil, perhaps. But out of all of that, God will still bring some good because that's the way God is. When Josiah, when Joseph and his brothers were dead and long gone, the Hebrew people were so prolific, they owned almost everything. They had so much land, they had so much provision, they had so many resources. But there was a new Pharaoh on the throne, and the Pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. And as he viewed this contingent of people in his country who were foreigners and had so much, he saw them as a threat that he needed to control. But as he meditated upon it, he thought, no, they can actually be a resource to my economy if I subject them to captivity and servitude. And that's exactly what they did. They became slaves crying out to God for freedom. And they were working hard and some of them were dying. And now God called Moses, you lead my people out of the land of Egypt. But first Pharaoh had to be persuaded. Now ten plagues are sent upon Egypt in order to change Pharaoh's mind. And you know all of these. The Nile River was turned into putrid blood. Frogs were in the water sources and in all of the rooms of everybody's house. Lice was as prevalent as dust on the ground. Swarms of flies that were in everybody's faces, a pandemic of disease on animals and, and humans, festering boils on every creature, a catastrophic hail that flattened crops, then locusts in clouds that devoured what was left, and then a thick darkness where no one could even see the hand in front of their faces. And none of that affected the Hebrew people in the land, only the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and still he resisted, and now comes this decisive plague the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family. The Israelite families are spared, however, because they've been given the prescription that if they kill a lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintel of all of their homes on the outside, death will pass over their homes 
and their firstborn will be spared. And now we've got that English term, Passover. But we've also got the Hebrew word, Pasach. And at last, Pharaoh relents, and he says, get out of my country. He's got a dead son in his palace. And so they gathered everything they could as fast as they could, put all their belongings and their foods together for a long, long trip. In fact, they couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. And in commemoration of that event for generations to follow because the Torah tells them to do this, they celebrate this with unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So matzo, flat unleavened bread, is still eaten by Jews at Passover. Well, back to chapter 22, verse 2, and you're saying, oh, no, he's only done one verse. In verse 2, there's a grim observation that the people in leadership among the Jews are going to kill Jesus. They just need a cagey plan because they don't want to alarm the people, some of whom really like Jesus. So Satan is behind the plot, and he invades Judas, who initiates the betrayal with the chief priests and the officers, and that's what you find in verses 3 through 6. When Passover, Holy Day, arrived, a Passover lamb needed to be sacrificed, and so Jesus instructed Peter and John to prepare that meal. But where would they do it? And Jesus told them how that should unfold. That's verses 7 through 13. The disciples have been aware of the animosity that the Jewish religious community has towards Jesus. They've been watching the ramping up of military might of the Romans, and they can feel the danger every day. And with these sentiments of fear and worry and confusion, they're meeting with Jesus in this upper room. And Jesus begins with an announcement that did nothing to relieve their anxiety. Verses 15 and 16 say this. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He said something similar about the kingdom of God when he came to the cup. He prayed thanks for it, and then he told the disciples to distribute it among themselves, and he added these words in verse 18. Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper, even during this Passover Seder meal, which celebrated an historical event that took place in Egypt long ago, the liberation of the Hebrew people. But Jesus now changes the significance of what they're doing for all time. He took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he passed it out to them, and he makes this shocker statement. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the symbolism that he's now applying to the bread and the cup breaks with tradition, breaks with history, breaks with the expectation that the disciples themselves have. The disciples know nothing about what's behind his meaning. They can't even imagine that he's going to die, let alone die a death by crucifixion. But Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it. In John chapter 12, 
Verse 27 says, and Jesus is talking to the Father. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now in the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So here comes the question of relevance again. What does Passover or the Feast of the Unleavened Bread or Eucharist or the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper or communion or bread or wine have to do with anything about which you've been preoccupied in your heart of hearts for the last six days? I'll tell you. God who created the universe that never stops expanding made a tiny earth to revolve around a sun at a significant distance just enough to sustain life and created the genome, the genetic material of all organisms and fashioned the hummingbirds that come and feed on the plants at my deck, loved you so much that he came here and he gave his life to release you from the burden of the guilt of your sin and give you pardon. And he wants you to remember him. Can't beat that hard. He left us this simple object lesson by which to think of him and what he did then and what he can do for us now if we'll not stop communing with him, talking with him. That's not so difficult. We'll talk to a shrink. We'll talk to a psychiatrist. We'll talk to a pastor, a counselor, a lawyer, a friend about our stuff, the stuff that's weighing us down and hurting us and breaking our hearts. If God were to speak to you and me right now in a vernacular tone, he might say something like, so what is it about my love that you just don't get yet? I mean, haven't I not been clear enough? Do you not understand what it means to cast all your cares upon me because I care for you? Have I not made enough promises and shown you that I deliver on those promises that you can ask me? Satan means a lot of things for our evil, whereas God intends for our good. If God could throw planets into a space that did not exist before he created the space, then he's easily strong enough to subdue the struggles that you and I are having, to end our excessive spending, to knock off our addictions, to dissolve the impasses you have with your friends or close ones in your family, and to end your out-of-control anger fits or your emotions or actions, and to heal your broken heart. He can do all that. And he wants us to remember him. And that's what we're going to do together, won't we? We're going to remember him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and take their places on the platform, and I'll ask David and Michelle to join me as well. And then together we're going to take the bread and the cup and we'll remember our Jesus.
Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and in the first letter to the Corinthian people, there's a section of Scripture where Paul has written this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the, the, the Lord's death until he comes. What's really important for you and me right now is to solemnly remember Jesus' death and why he came here to set us free. It's a time for introspection. It's a time for self-evaluation. And it's very much a time for saying to the Lord, forgive me, forgive me. And then saying, thank you, thank you for doing what was necessary in order to redeem my soul.